The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but rather it is to irrigate deserts. The idea of magic, as C.S. Lewis brings up, magic and the sciences he views as the same thing. Part of ourselves that partakes in the sacred, in the divine, that's what gives us any kind of power. That's the whole thing. It's like, well, where do you get your strength spiritually? There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. Welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Docapel. And I'm Sophie Glomperens. Today we are joined by Cynthia Chung uh, from Montreal, Canada. Cynthia is an editor-in-chief and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation. She's lectured on topics of Schiller's aesthetics, Shakespeare's tragedies, Roman history, the Florentine resistance, among other subjects. She is a writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation and a contributing author to the book series The Clash of the Two Americas. You can also find her on her substack Through a Glass Darkly. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so the Rising Tide Foundation, I had wanted to ask you a couple questions about that first. Um, so your mission statement, first, uh, first and foremost, is in the enhancement of cross-cultural understanding and dialogue between East and West, and you're interested in facilitating greater bridges between East and West, and also providing services that includes geopolitical analysis, research in the arts, philosophy, sciences, and history. So today we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy. Um, I've watched your three-part lecture series on the space trilogy, or science fiction trilogy, as you emphasized, and really enjoyed it. So my first question to you today is, um, how how did your organization become, or you specifically, became interested in C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy? Because I've talked with a lot of science fiction and aficionados, and it's actually kind of surprising how little of them are familiar with, with C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy. So how does that kind of relate to what you do and about, you know, geopolitics and East and West and that sort of thing? Um, sure. Well, for for C.S. Lewis, I think I'm uh, the typical case where I was introduced to the Narnia series as a kid. So I always had a really, uh, you know, a good um, impression and uh, sort of relationship to that writing. Um, and I only, you know, because Tolkien is a, a bit harder to read anyway, um, I only started to read Tolkien afterwards. Um, and then I uh, was familiar with the, the Screwtape Letters. And um, I was surprised myself. I actually only discovered that there was this science fiction series um, this past like January or something because someone had sent me a video from the Discovery Institute that uh, was basically referring to C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength and how it was warning, you know, way back in, in the 1940s uh, where we find ourselves today. And I was completely blown away that I've never heard about this, this series as well. And uh, I immediately started to uh, read them. And uh, I, I was, again, very impressed. It was a very different writing style. I had no idea that um, these were even thoughts that C.S. Lewis um, 
was a uh, was contemplating at the time. So it just added another layer of complexity to uh, the the genius of C.S. Lewis. And in the sense of how this fits into uh, the Rising Tide Foundation mission. We believe that, I mean, actually, this is kind of the point of C.S. Lewis's that hideous strength as well, which I'm not going to have time to talk about the whole Merlin uh, element to it, um, because there's just, it's such a complicated book that you would need a lot of time to go through these, these things. But uh, C.S. Lewis is making the point in bringing up Merlin that there are two Britons, you know, there's the, the better uh, side of Britain with the, the, the culture of uh, poetry and literature, and then there's the imperialist and also you know going in the direction of a scientific dictatorship that he sees and these are like the two identities that that Britain is uh, struggling with and um, that's very much our view with a rising tide in terms of culture everywhere like and and C.S. Lewis makes that point that every country every you can say cultural identity is struggling with this today in an existential crisis and so when we study the better elements of the history and the culture of civilizations it, it makes them more humane it and it also connects us to a common thread of humanity that we all share I believe that <clears throat> we're all born uh, imago viva day that we all share a sacredness and that nobody is born outside of that. And all civilizations, all great civilizations have recognized that and tapped into it. And we go through periods of forgetting this, but, um, you know, I, I believe that everyone shares this. And so that's the mission is to kind of, I guess, <clears throat> remind people of some of the forgotten beauties of their history. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about your educational background? You've written on a lot of like really diverse topics. Um, so when I read you, it's like, it, it's, it's almost like you're a bit of a, a Renaissance woman in terms of your, uh, the body, your body of interests. I'm, I'm pretty much a, a self-taught person. My background is actually in molecular genetics. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So, but the thing is, is, okay, I have a Chinese mother and she wanted me to have like a practical career choice, right? So I uh, clearly liked literature and I, I liked philosophy as a kid, but, you know, um, as a typical Chinese mother would say, those are not, you know, a reliable career choices. And um, so I, I was interested in the sciences as well. And, and so I kind of went into that um, in university, but again, as C.S. Lewis makes the point that if what is motivating the sciences has lost the element of the, the morality, it's not going to lead to a good destination point. And I found that out actually in studying molecular genetics that when it came time to finding a job, there wasn't really a lot of choices to make that would have been very exciting or me feeling like I was doing a service to society, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's really interesting that you were able to, you know, you're definitely coming from like a background in the sciences, which I guess would make, I, I would understand why you would be interested in, in science fiction specifically. And, you know, it's really great to see what you're doing um, in terms of kind of resurrecting the humanities and having these conversations. Um, so let's let's uh, jump a little bit into first, I guess, the cultural background and uh, that of Lewis Lewis at the time that he was writing and maybe some of his contemporaries. So most of us, when we think of the early writers of science fiction, we think of people like 
Aldous Huxley and H.G. Wells, um, and to some extent Orwell, although Orwell was more politically oriented. Um, but Lewis was writing um, in the midst of all of these things, and you can find overlap in his themes between Huxley, Orwell, and H.G. Wells, but it's kind of like a Venn diagram where no one really completely overlaps completely. So how would you say Lewis is contributing to the conversation of his contemporaries? What were some of the things that he had in common with these with these uh, writers like Huxley, Orwell, and Wells? Um, and what are some ways that he diverged? Well, um, I think that most definitely, as I, uh, I went through in the, the part one of this lecture series, his science fiction was in response to, in part, H.G. Wells's uh, First Men in the Moon. And if you've read that book, uh, which is very, it's a very short read, I, I suggest it's, it's worth people's while. It, it describes a society, an ideal society um, that's made up of kind of like ant-like aliens on the moon, <clears throat> and they have a certain kind of hierarchy that is a very utilitarian and specialized to, you know, to the point of like chemical conditioning at a very young, you know, age for these um, alien children and so forth. And, uh, you know, it associates intelligence with who has the largest head, of course. And uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World very much takes from that and also the work of Bertrand Russell's uh, scientific outlook. So these currents were uh, originated with T.H. Huxley and uh, his work in promoting the ideas of, of Darwin, which pretty much caused a revolution in the the sciences. I mean, there was already a move away from, there was a move towards atheism already in the sciences with the Enlightenment, but T.H. Huxley really, with the work of uh, Darwin, kind of, it was considered proof that there was no God anymore kind of thing, and, and there was no purpose to anything the universe and thus our our lives as well there was there was no higher purpose and um we were not ultimately sacred we did not partake in the divine because we were beasts and all chance was governed by randomness and you know if you're a beast you're not really concerned with higher truths. You arguably can't even understand higher truths, even though they might exist. And uh, thus, you should only be concerned with the seeking out of pleasure. So, you know, when you really look at this, it's actually quite explicit doctrine for what a slave should be abiding by. And that really is what it was about in this idea, increasingly of a scientific dictatorship, but slaves that would enjoy their slavery. So C.S. Lewis was very familiar with this, and he he references it directly in several parts of the science fiction series, uh, especially on this uh, idea of emergent evolution, which seems at first maybe in opposition to uh, Darwinism, but it, it's not. It all leads to uh, the same destination point. And um, so the, the difference with C.S. Lewis is that he actually says that this is not inevitable, and that if we go down this this path, we we will lose everything. And you know, when we later on discuss in this uh, in this discussion about the the abolition of man, I can go further into that because he he really goes through this in a very beautiful philosophical lecture. On in addition to the the 
science fiction that he writes in that hideous strength as to what are the there's there's no way out of it like if you understand how natural law works and you try to exit natural law it will only lead to your own destruction but there's this idea amongst this grouping that they've figured out how to you know master nature and the laws of the universe, which is uh, is is completely delusional. Right. So the you, you've mentioned that. Well, I guess the hideous strength is basically the fictional version of the abolition of man, and that the abolition of man is really important. And it's interesting how Lewis starts it because in the abolition of man essay, it starts with him getting a a copy of a textbook from one of his colleagues, in which the opening of the textbook. Uh, has two people, uh, two uh, students looking at a waterfall. And one of the students says that this waterfall is sublime. And then the writers of the textbook insist that when he says that this waterfall is sublime, he is actually not really saying that it is sublime, but rather that he has sublime feelings. I have sublime feelings. And like that is the beginning of his argument of saying that this this seemingly innocuous claim is actually something that's going to eventually, when followed to its logical conclusion, result in the abolition of man itself. So how do we get to that train of thought? That seems like a pretty pretty small place to start to go from there to abolition of man. So what's, what's the logical thought process there? Um... Well, again, I'm I'm so impressed with the sensitivity of of uh, C.S. Lewis in in how he's speaking about this problem in the education system. And again, you know, he he was a don at Cambridge, um, and yet clearly in that hideous strength, he you know he makes up a fake university and a fake college uh, that's under the umbrella of this university. But this university is like in competition with Oxford and Cambridge, and is basically a clear reference that Oxford and Cambridge also share in these problems. And um, so he's very concerned about where the education system is going. And uh, these two grammarians who write this green book and send it to C.S. Lewis, he he's convinced that they themselves are not really aware of what they're doing to the students, which is basically you're negating value. And, you know, this whole idea of like, you cannot say that something is sublime you can only say that you feel the feeling of uh, sublime so there's there is not like an objective truth pretty much that you can you can put on to something he's saying that first of all this would be very <clears throat> this breaks down into absurdity very quickly when if you say like oh i'm disgusted with what you said that really means that you are disgusted with yourself you know and you can, <laughs> you can have all these kinds of absurdities but the other more troubling element to this is that um you you know you're basically saying that you cannot have value judgments that they're and and he goes on through this lecture saying like or are you saying that there are certain value judgments that you you do agree with and that's typically what happens with these people is that they're like criticizing certain frameworks of value judgment but then they want to keep some of those values um and uh, he's saying like first of all you don't get to decide that and you know this is uh talking about again natural law the value judgments at attached to natural law or what he calls the Tao, or the traditionalist moralist uh moral school of um of values which have existed for you know 
centuries and, uh, you know, crosses all culture all around the world. You cannot just all of a sudden try to change that in a way that is like a, a drastic reform. And he's saying that with these students, they have no idea that they've even entered into an ethical debate on, well, what is truth and what is value? They think that they're learning grammar <laughs> so that they're just taking in these like assumptions as like just basic fact so that when they grow up, they're going to have, they're going to, as C.S. Lewis says, they're going to take a side in a debate that they didn't even realize was, was a debate on truth and value because they unconsciously at a very young age accepted it through these types of um, educational tools. And uh, he makes the point that the educators, you know, um, there's a quote, he says, the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles. That is right. It's not up to us to try to cut out things of our students that we don't want them to have as thoughts, but rather it is to irrigate deserts. And that means that we are, as educators, supposed to help the student to grow, basically, uh, a diverse kind of lively, you know, <laughs> ecosystem, for lack of a, a better word, um, to, to, to feed that desert so that things can grow, not to cut things out. And uh, these educators have, you know, become conditioners, he says. It used to be that educators were, you know, supposed to be initiators and uh, people who would pass things down. He says, men transmitting manhood to men. Um, now, he says, educators are merely propagandists. And that's uh, an example he uses with these, these two grammarians who make this claim on value and truth, and the student never even knows it, and they themselves don't even know it. So they're just propagating this ideology, which again, if you look at the work of, of T.H. Huxley and Bertrand Russell, it's very consciously done. And again, it's done as a form of slavery uh, towards this idea of a necessary uh, scientific dictatorship. Um, and these are people who also promote eugenics as well. Right. I want to tackle, uh, if we can, the daunting task of at least summarizing in part the story of that hideous strength. Um, so, but before, do you have any thoughts, Sophie? Any questions? Oh, yeah. One question. This is a tiny bit of a rabbit trail, but it occurred to me while we were talking about uh, Huxley and Orwell and H.G. Wells. Um, C.S. Lewis obviously has a negative opinion of H.G. Wells, and he goes out of his way to uh, make fun of him sometimes. He, in his uh, foreword, especially for Out of the Silent Planet, he talks about H.G. Wells. I'm just curious, you said you'd read a little bit of H.G. Wells. Do you agree with him? Do you think that C.S. Lewis is right about that? <laughs> um, yes, I, I've, I've read, uh, well, first of all, again, People can read The First Man in the Moon. It's not that long of a read. And it is quite atrocious what he considers, <laughs> what he considers something that is more ideal than, you know, I mean, we have a lot of problems on earth, don't get me wrong, in how we've, you know, managed governments and things like this. But, you know, it, it is such a, a grotesque um, system. Uh, he, he basically idealizes how ants conduct themselves in a colony. And he makes that the superior alien race to the moon, but he has added, you know, scientific technology to the the, the way that an ant colony would set itself up and he calls this beautiful, you know, so it's, mm -hmm. um, 
it's very detached. And actually, I'll, I will share a quote with the people to get an idea, because there are so many bad quotes uh, by H.G. Wells, but he wrote in his <laughs> Anticipations of the Reaction of Mechanical and Scientific Progress Upon Human Life and Thought, that was a big mouthful, um, he wrote, it has become apparent that whole masses of human population are, as a whole, inferior in their claim upon the future to other masses, uh, that they cannot be given opportunities or trusted with power as the superior peoples are trusted, that their characteristic weaknesses are contagious and detrimental to the civilizing fabric, and that their range of incapacity tempts and demoralizes the strong. To give them equality is to sink to their level, to protect and cherish them is to be swamped in their fecundity. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, sounds like something Weston would say for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So um, that hideous strength. So the, the hideous strength is the concluding um, series to to his his trilogy, and it's it's um the 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 title is actually borrowed from I think it's like a medieval poet or or something or is a metaphysical poet. I I don't remember. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a poet, uh, Sir David Lindsay, and it's from the Anna Dialogue. I myself, uh, I, I read the poem. It's, it's a poem on, uh, you know, that hideous strength from, from the, the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's what inspired C.S. Lewis's, uh, title. All right. All right. So, um, if we could, yeah, let's, let's kind of jump into like, a maybe, a a summary and setup of, you know, how you're analyzing that hideous strength, some of the central characters, and maybe along the way we can sort of connect those to some of the characters and ideas that you've been outlining before. Sure. Um, So that hideous strength, I'm going to, again, kind of skip over some elements uh, because we don't have time to go over it, but the um, story revolves around a couple uh, named Mark and Jane, and Mark is a sociologist, and Jane is um, a student of English literature or graduate of uh, English literature. And Mark is working for Brockton College, so that's one of the made-up colleges that is attached to Exeter University, which again you can kind of think of as a sort of Oxford Cambridge uh, situation. And there is a battle within Brockton College between what he calls the progressive element versus the traditionalist school. So the progressive element views the uh, sciences as having been held back because of the old uh, doctrines of morality. And so he, the, this grouping believes that the new sciences have been suffocated by red tape bureaucracy and um, uh, constraints around concerns of the ethics, morality, what is legal. And they are convinced that once their discoveries are allowed to be made and to flourish and are implemented into society, then the ideas around ethics, morality, and legality will adjust themselves accordingly. And thus, to them, the laws of ethics, morality, and law are relative. And that's a big, that's a big thing. So Mark is, he, one of the problems, one of the themes in that hideous strength is this concept of the inner ring. And C.S. Lewis did a lecture on this. And so Mark is uh, very much drawn to wanting to be in the inner ring, which, you know, uh, is a very straightforward thing for everyone. You know, it's the group, it's the, he is drawn to the esoteric 
and also to have influence and power. So he's always seeking out where is this inner ring that seems to hold these, um, these answers or powers. And so in Bracton College, he identifies this as the progressive element. And uh, we also find out that Xtau is working in close collaboration with uh, this institute called NICE as an acronym. It's the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. And it's sort of a, uh, you could say a Tavistock type institute. And uh, they believe in doing vivisections. That means like live, you know, cutting open of animals and uh, experiments on humans. And uh, so again, you can see that the progressive element in Bracton College has identified NICE as, a, as something that is along their, their, their paradigm. Uh, what would I say about that? Uh, so the inner ring, yeah. So the first inner ring, which is at Bracton College, they so everybody, there's there are several inner rings in that hideous strength, and they all think that they are working towards a different goal. So the inner ring at Bracton College thinks that their ultimate goal is pragmatism. <laughs> then um, uh, Mark meets Lord Feverston, who is a divine uh, or divine from the uh, the first book out of uh, the Silent Planet. He's now called Lord Feverston because he's moved up in the ranks, and he represents the next inner circle. And he's sort of the introduction that Mark gets now to the Nice Institute. And uh, you know, there's a very telling conversation when um, Mark is in the presence of his superiors at Bracton College, along with Lord Feverston. You know, his superiors are saying pragmatism is the ultimate, and uh, Mark is like, well. Well, you know, I think that uh, this idea of the the that Nice has their own police force, and this idea that we could enforce these ideas onto society um, is actually the most important thing. And so, of course, Lord Feverston is uh, very much like you know your nice material uh, with that kind of thinking, and um, and he's just like a sycophant, so, you know, basically. Yeah. Yeah. He's just saying that because it's like the cool and edgy thing to say. Yeah, Mark is not like quite, Mark has gotten so used to just saying certain things. Um, and we're going to realize that, you know, he he kind of finds himself again by the end of the book, but he's become so used to saying things and just doing things to, to he, he's very much a, a, a slave mentality, right? And he seems he, he needs to pick who he will be subservient to, but he always tries to pick the strongest thing to be subservient to, but he's lost his own, um, you know, thinking in that process. Uh, so Lord Feverston, we, we see in his inner ring idea is very much of the Aldous Huxley, H.G. Wells type, where the ultimate goal is sterilization of the unfit, the liquidation of backward races, selective breeding, and real education. The real education, he says, Lord Feverston, makes the patient what it wants infallibly, whatever he or his parents try to do about it. So it's the kind of education that you don't have a choice in. So it's a, a form of conditioning otherwise, right? It's a, it's a form of um, propaganda and conditioning, which again is very much modeled on this brave new world kind of concept that they believe that they can do this, right? And then there's this other part of NICE, which is remedial treatment. So that um, remedial treatment has no fixed limit in the sense of like the people who will not go along with this kind of education and this kind of um, hierarchy, you will have this kind of treatment for them. And there's, there's no um, effect. 
it can go on and uh, till it has an affected cure, which, you know, the people who are conducting this are the ones that decide when the cure happens. So again, this is very much Tavistock MK Ultra, where, <clears throat> you know, you can either take the people who are dis so-called dysfunctional in society, like the depressed people who have depression or people who have like whatever kind of problem that they're considered not, you know, normal, so to speak. They're not adapting to what the society is asking for them. When in reality, these people are actually often not dysfunctional. They're having a healthy rejection to something that they should be rejecting, but, you know, they have these sorts of treatments and it's also an excuse to do um, experimentations on people. So another element of NICE that's really important is that they have their own police force and they own the newspapers in Eggstow. And so- It's like, it's like Disney World now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, C.S. Lewis, again, is just like, is very astute and seeing there's a lot of overlap with what has been going on in our world over the last several years to this, where, yeah, police force, the newspapers are increasingly being owned by a selective group. And in the case, in, the, um, in that hideous strength, he even says that NICE has organized riots in Exhal explicitly so that their own police could then have control. So that the normal police were not able to supposedly handle this and their newspapers will report this so that their own police will have control and then they are able to have emergency protocols um, so that they can start to cut red tape all over the place um, from these engineered disturbances. And so very swiftly, you have civil liberties that are um, being swept under the rug. And again, this is all viewed as relative. There is according to this way of thinking, there is no such thing as, um, you know, civil liberties. So then the next ring uh, that we meet, so now Mark is working within NICE, and the next ring that we meet is uh, this scientist named Philostrato. That hideous strength is like, it's it's quite uh, zany, and uh, <laughs> basically there is this person whose head is like, cut off and like they have this head basically in um, the nice institute uh, that is supposed to be like speaking the orders to everybody so not everybody knows this right there's inner rings within nice as well so philostrato is one of the people who is aware that there's this talking head um, that is connected to all these tubes and everything and he views himself as being in charge of keeping this head you know in uh, with like sterile in a sterile environment and you know he's in charge of like the saliva so that the the head can talk and whatever and so Philostrato's idea of um what he's working towards is the conquest of death or the conquest of organic life and he says whichever you prefer they are the same and uh his view is to bring out of that cocoon of organic life which shelters the babyhood of mind the new man the man who will not die, the artificial man, free from nature. Nature is the ladder we have climbed up. Uh, now we kick her away. <clears throat> so this is a, a transhumanist idea. And um, again, transhumanism was transhumanism was uh, brought forward by Julian Huxley and uh, Taillard de Chardin. 
uh, who is a, a Jesuit. And uh, again, Julian Huxley worked very closely with H.G. Wells, was, was uh, immensely uh, influenced by his grandfather, T.H. Huxley. Um, so you see, again, this ideology is always coming back to something that we are clearly seeing in our own time as uh, large influencers. So it sounds insane when you're reading the book, but then you're like, wait a minute, it's actually uh, kind of happening in real life. And well, uh, there's... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, it's interesting that like um like George Orwell kind of predicted the invention of the television as a technology in his science fiction novels before the television was ex existed. So, in some sense a lot of the technological things that we have um are 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 being utilized to sort of realize the vision that was already being talked about to a large extent by these people that you you've been mentioning. Um, back in the, you know, the early 20th century. And it's also Philostrato, too. I think he actually castrated himself in the book, right? He's like a eunuch, because that's how committed he is to uh, <laughs> severing himself from organic life. Oh, I missed that part. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, but I can see him doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he has this idea that there will be well, yeah, I'm not going to go too much into his uh, idea because it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy. But again, he shares a lot um, as well because he's at one point looking at the moon and he's talking about this advanced uh, race that lives on the moon and and that they're completely you know living in an environment of sterility and uh, I mean everything is uh, like yeah sterile and artificial and for him this is like perfection this is uh and it's again in reference to hg wells's the first men in the moon so we realize that uh there's this like really beautiful paragraph that c.s lewis is kind of uh, i think speaking just from the narrator's voice and he says despair of objective truth had been increasingly insinuated into the scientists indifference to it and a concentration upon mere power had been the result. Babel about élan vital and flirtations with panpsychism were bidding fair to restore the anima mundi of the magicians. Dreams of the far future destiny of man were dragging up from its shallow and unquiet grave the old dream of man as God. So I think that, again, that's uh, very good. And he, interestingly, he makes the point, right, that um, with the, the new advent of sciences, that is the more atheistic uh, idea of the sciences, they realized that they had lost a certain kind of power that was in the past. And so this power that they have lost, they try to recombine it with this new dead idea of like the, the sciences you know, the new sciences as an atheistic science sees everything as kind of dead. Um, and, uh, and they're trying to incorporate this like old power. And that's what Merlin kind of represents in this book is this idea of like, everyone needs to kind of return to something that we've lost for, for both sides. And both sides are not sure which side Merlin is going to, to be on. Is he going to be evil? Is he going to be satanic? Or is he going to be uh, resisting this? And um, Right. We haven't actually talked about the other side yet. Um, no. So right. let's, let's maybe let's put pause on Mark's story a little bit and, and sort of divert our attention to Jane and the other side. 
Yes. So Jane is having dreams and she realizes that these dreams are actually things that are are happening, but it, it takes her a very long time to realize this. And uh, she, she talks about this with her former professor, Mr. Dimble, who turns out to be a part of this uh, kind of misfits uh, select group uh, under ransom who Ransom now, since he's returned from Paralandra, is almost of like an ethereal type quality. And um, he's now uh, known as the, the Fisher King. And he, he has uh, almost like a, a saintly presence, um, a glow to him. And he's, he's, now he doesn't age and he's, uh, he's, he's young. Um, and he, he has the same uh, wound on his heel as the Fisher King, you know, from when Weston, um, bit him when Weston was possessed uh, by the devil on Paralandra. Um, and so Mr. Dimble, hearing Jane's dreams, realizes that she's super important and um, that they that they need to, to try to bring her in because she will be instrumental in trying to find Merlin because both sides are, are trying to find Merlin and the way that the legend goes, he's he, he never died, but he's been sleeping all this time buried deep in Bragdon Wood, which is this like ancient wood uh, right by Exthal University which Nice is in the process of like digging up to find Merlin. So, I mean, it, it, a lot of, um, I think what is going on is around the, the, the Arthurian lessons as, as well. And, um, I'm not super familiar on the Arthurian lessons, but like this was very much directed to a British audience, that hideous strength. And um, there's this whole thing of the history with the Welsh and, and their oppression and everything. But, but basically, again, Merlin is representative of something that has been lost. It's been kind of oppressed and buried. And part of that is the Welsh culture and tradition within Britain. Not that Merlin was uh, Welsh, but he was apparently of a Druidic type influence, which would have been Welsh. And um, all to say is that C.S. Lewis, who was a professor of 12th century medievalism, also very much was of this view that we had lost something with this whole uh, revolution in the sciences, and that it's not for us to return to that uh, what we've lost in a direct manner, but we need to kind of figure out a way of bringing forward something, um, but it has to also qualitatively change at the same time. So it's, it's, it's not, it's not so simple. And um, so with the, the, the bad group with their idea of the, the sciences, you know, it's an idea of, you could say black magic versus white magic where the black magic is, you know, something that can, uh, that, that views itself above natural law or something that can break and reshape natural law. Whereas white magic uh, abides by the laws of nature. And, you know, the idea of magic as C.S. Lewis brings up in Abolition of Man, magic and the sciences he views as this, the, the same thing. It's not really, um, you know, of a more cartoonish, uh, way of thinking about magic, but to to use um, the sciences to transform things, um, but based on a certain 
uh, perspective and understanding of the universe that you live in or the people, you know, how you identify what, what is human nature, um, whether it's a beast or sacred, you know, is going to shape how you choose to use these tools. Um, so again, that's what Merlin is representative of. And, and Ranson's group understands this, um, this thing that has been lost and they're, they're fighting to have that um, basically continue forward. Right. I don't know if that made any sense. <laughs> no, 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 it really did. That's great. So, so Jane Studdock kind of falls in um, with, with Ransom and their group at St. Anne's. And they're kind of seen as the the kind of underpinning, I guess, the second Britain, the true Britain, because this is the clash of the two Britons. Um, and she's also clairvoyant. And there's also this kind of sense. I mean, it's not so not so subtle uh, plot that develops where the both the nice and St. Anne's both see Jane as an asset because she has the ability to see the future. So the nice wants Jane. And then we realize that the nice actually wants Mark so that they can get Jane. Um, exactly. And then and then later we have this this idea of Merlin and we realize that the reason why the nice wanted to uh, buy Bracton Wood is because Merlin is supposedly buried in that place and they want to get their hands on Merlin. And so there's this again the battle of like, you know, like you said, what what side Merlin is going to be on. So I want to talk a little bit about about Merlin, Merlin and what Lewis is doing with Merlin. Um, so Orwell had kind of an ambivalent stance towards that hideous strength, and part of it was because of Lewis's inclusion of Merlin. So I'm going to read a little bit, uh, a quote here from Orwell. He wrote a review of, of that hideous strength in Manchester Evening News shortly after it was published. Quote, Plenty of people in our age do entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, the nice scientists, and we are within the sight of the time when such dreams will be realizable. And this review was written shortly after the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. However, Orwell argued that the book, quote, would have been stronger without the supernatural elements. Lewis is entitled to his beliefs, but they weaken his story not only because they offend the average reader's sense of probability, but because, in effect, they decide the issue in advance. When one is told that God and the devil are in conflict, one always knows which side is going to win. The whole drama of the struggle against evil lies in the fact that one does not have supernatural aid. However, more Orwell maintained that the book was still worth reading. So... Um, uh, so what are we, how, 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 how would you respond to Orwell's criticism? Is that legitimate? Uh, I think that, you know, Orwell himself was, was struggling with a lot. And, um, you know, Orwell's background is that he, he worked for the British Empire and uh, he was stationed in Burma and he was part of the uh, torturing techniques in Burma. So the whole idea of 1984, um, I think Orwell was in a severe, con like he had a, a lot that he, he had to deal with because of the terrible things that he had done. And I think he was trying to, trying to reconcile and, 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 and form meaning um, to his life. And I think that ultimately he, he probably was not 
successful, you know, in that, and that's the tragedy of, uh, of Orwell, but 1984, from how I understand it is a representation of, um, that Orwell is both Winston, the tortured and O'Brien, the torturer and, uh, Orwell, even though he had problems with the British empire, never really disconnected from the British empire and worked for them in intelligence, um, it might be even to his, uh, you know, his last days. Um, and not to say that he, he, he was like completely okay with this or anything, but um, at the end of the day, you know, he could not escape uh, that kind of inner ring. Let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, these people are put into an education system at a very young age. I've heard terrible things about Eton. That's where uh, George Orwell went. That's where Aldous Huxley and Julian Huxley went. Um, Aldous Huxley didn't even want to send his son to Eton. It's like that messed up. Um, and they really severely <clears throat> condition you and brainwash you. And there's probably also a lot of, um, you know, pedophilia going on. And, um, and so Orwell was uh, struggling with a lot. And I think that C.S. Lewis was very aware of this. There's no way you could not be aware of it being in the Oxford and Cambridge type environment. Um, but I think that C.S. Lewis ultimately was much stronger than Orwell um, spiritually. And um, that's the whole thing is like, well, where do you get your strength spiritually? Because it's, it can be invisible and people can even say, well, you're delusional. You're, you, you find your strength in a delusion. But um, I think that, uh, again, if you understand, uh, and I mean, it's not just blind faith. C.S. Lewis uh, did a lot of work on, um, first of all, studying the platonic method of a philosophical investigation, which is a form of the sciences. Like the metaphysics and epistemology were cut out of the sciences, the atheistic sciences, because only empirical data, you know, raw facts and this sort of thing were accepted, but actually a philosophical investigation in um, the way of Plato. Plato wasn't the only one. Uh, C.S. Lewis also talks about Confucius in the abolition of men. And I completely agree with C.S. Lewis that they're both from the same, you know, school of uh, philosophical thinking. You can come to truth with things that are not tangible and things that you don't see directly with your eyes. And I think that people like Orwell struggled with that. And that's why they ultimately allowed themselves to be enslaved by the British Empire. Um, whereas C.S. Lewis, even though he was a, a professor at Cambridge, which was very controversial, and that university put forward many terrible, terrible policies and, and education, he was a, a, a kind of lighthouse. And he was, I think, a savior to a lot of the students who would listen to him I think he saved, I think he saved a lot of lives of these students who were otherwise going to be completely drowned in that kind of education system. So, you know, it's not about just like having to see something and, you know, you can use metaphor, you can use um, certain types of imaginative styles of explaining something like Merlin, like C.S. Lewis doesn't literally believe in uh, Merlin in, in this way, but it's, representing something that is not tangible or like even the word rational versus irrational has become like very mixed up in our our way of thinking because the new sciences has affected all of us like 
we all have a little bit of a problem with thinking outside of the box because we've been conditioned from a very young age with our education system to only associate a specific kind of meaning with a specific kind of word, which is not how it used to be for centuries is what C.S. Lewis is making the point on. Right. It has to do with a lot of it is kind of like an a priori assumption that we all share that, you know, science is really the only valid epistemology, which isn't to say that there's anything wrong with the practice of science, but rather science as a philosophy, science of way of understanding and a, and a way of life and a, and a way of kind of um, explaining the the meaning of our existence and what it means to be human, I guess, is really the nefarious thing. Well, also, it's um, it's surprising to me that Orwell uh, would say this at all, or maybe ironic, because I would say that the main problem with 1984 is the fact that it there is no supernatural aid. Because he says, like, when one is told that God and the devil are in conflict, one always knows which side is going to win. I think the, the conclusion of 1984 is a foregone conclusion because there is no supernatural aid. There's no way for Winston to win. There's no way for there to be any sort of rebellion unless there's some kind of supernatural aid. And so we all know, we all know that Big Brother is going to win. So, yeah, no, that's a that's a very good point. So do you want do you want to kind of we'll, we'll kind of like uh go to I guess skip a little bit to the the epic conclusion of that hideous strength and that's where that's where all of these characters clash together in in a in a banquet um and Merlin kind of infiltrates so uh do we want to kind of set that up what happens there and what what that ultimately means yeah so the the bad guys at nice they think that they have captured Merlin but it ends up being just a, a tramp and uh and so they're not able to communicate with this uh tramp and they uh put out an ad for a, a, a translator and uh Merlin is the one who who answers to this so it's it's Merlin uh shows up at the nice institute and um you know he's He's claiming that the tramp is saying that he's Merlin in you know whatever language that he's uh he's uh pretending to speak to the the tramp and he does it like he has some sort of like magical possession powers I guess that he can like yeah. he turns him into a puppet and makes the tramp start talking exactly in Latin yeah. or something yeah and yeah. Uh, and so they all show up so they're all excited now they're like oh we got Merlin and uh, so there's this big you know banquet dinner. And uh, you have um, Jules, who is like the public figurehead of the the Nice Institute, <clears throat> who again is a, a kind of uh, dig at H.G. Wells, the way that they describe him. And quickly, you start to have a kind of Tower of Babel situation where Jules is speaking and uh, everybody's just... The way that C.S. Lewis sets the scene up, by the way, is, is really hilarious. Like C.S. Yeah. Lewis is such a <laughs> funny guy and I can't do it justice by even trying to explain how he like was making up because even him making up nonsensical phrases the way he does it specifically is is hilarious I wouldn't be able to 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 do it off the top of my head and so everyone's just kind of you know usually people are not really listening that closely anyway to these kind of boring events and so it takes people a bit of time to realize wait a minute he's not making any sense at all and then um i think it's uh withers so withers and frost are the 
supposed real scientists at the NICE Institute who are at the top, top, top of the inner ring. So Withers um, frantically, you know, breaks in and he starts talking to uh, the the members of the banquet. And, uh, you know, he's also talking nonsensical stuff. And so quickly things become very chaotic. People are also starting to argue with each each other they're starting to fight nobody can understand anybody and um the bear i keep forgetting the name of this bear uh do you remember baltitude okay baltitude he's one of the members uh of ransom's group and uh he you know ends up at the nice institute not by his choice but he he ends up there uh he's like captured because they're they want to experiment on animals so they find a bear walking around on the street and uh they they bring him to the nice institute and he ends up freeing the animals that are well enough to to escape and they uh basically all enter the banquet and attack <laughs> attack the people of uh nice and uh it you know it's like mayhem and carnage uh, is basically a massacre, but Withers and uh, Frost and uh, Lord Feverston do survive. <clears throat> we didn't have time to talk about the fairy, but the fairy is this sort of sadist uh, that's in charge of the police force. Um, and again, just very uh, insightful how C.S. Lewis describes uh, that you know, kind of set up, but I don't really think we have time to, to talk about that. And the, the curse of Babel, Merlin pronounces the curse of Babel on everyone at the banquet. And then he yes. says in a, in a great loud voice, they have despised the word of God. Now even the word of man shall be taken away. And that's like right. the curse of Babel. Frost and Wither, they uh, escape and we realize, so we're starting to enter the last inner ring of um, this what was this whole purpose of the nice institute really and uh we we realized that the head was not ever this kind of um uh, scientific miracle that philostrato thought that he you know had uh, accomplished but rather that this head is uh not being um is not talking through sciences but actually as according to frost and wither it's from macrobes so you have like microscopic organisms and then you have uh, macrobes, uh, which are also invisible, um, but they're on the large scale and like pretty much from their understanding, all of our human history, everything has been shaped by these macrobes, which we've never seen. And so they're, they are subservient to these, uh, these macrobes. We end up realizing that the macrobes are in fact, Frost and Wither don't even have it right are the evil uh, sort of spirits of, of, of the devil. And um, again, you know, for people, just as a reminder, earth is like under siege and Satan has taken over the earth as the Oyarsa of earth that has gone against Malakandra, the god. And, uh, you know, you have Oyarsas from Mars and you have an, an Oyarsa from Paralandra and so forth. And so it's only earth that because that's why earth is called the silent planet because it's lost communication with all these others because our oyarsa has turned bad so they've actually been doing the work of the devil all this time um, but they thought that they were doing it for the sciences or for a superior kind of species alien species you could say right so after the dining room massacre it's uh um withers and philostrato and strake which is this other guy um go to the head and they're like bobbing up and down and everything and the head 
asks for a, a new head, basically a sacrifice. So uh, Withers and uh, Strake uh, kill Philostrato and in a kind of hilarious scene, because Philostrato says he realized they were going to murder him unscientifically. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for Philostrato, he's still like caught in this idea of like, the strict rules of the sciences and you can do the most diabolical things as long as it's for the advent of science you know science is his god and so they kill him and then they realize that the head is probably going to ask for another sacrifice so wither and strake fight each other and then withers succeeds at uh in killing strake in the ante room which is an adjacent room to the the room that they're they're in then he when he returns to philostrato's head he sees movement in the corner of his eye and it's this large bear uh and he uh, again c.s lewis hilariously saying you know once you start to question everything in terms of reality and purpose and you turn it on upside down on its head it becomes that anything is possible so you know this whole thing of like the sciences are supposed to keep us grounded and all of this it actually ends up if you go down that uh rabbit hole um that you're going to believe in anything and so withers in a very hilarious way sees this bear rising up on its hind legs and he's like is that straight <laughs> because <laughs> in the world that he in the world that he lives in, these kinds of transformations are completely impossible. And so, you know, we, we all know how it ends with whether Mr. Um, Bultitude uh, ends up killing him. And, um, and then we're left with Frost. And uh, there's a very uh, beautiful paragraph that uh, I'm going to sh- just share with people of Frost's idea where he is, he's, he knows on some level, C.S. Lewis is saying, that he's been wrong this whole time and that there is likely a soul with the face of redemption with the with the the choice still before him to come to to reconcile the the destruction that he has done he still refuses and uh, c.s lewis writes uh still not asking what he would do or why frost went to the garage so at this point like pretty much everyone's dead except for lord feverston he came up with as many petrol tins as he could carry. He piled all the inflammables he could think of together in the objective room, which uh, is what they were putting Mark in actually to try to make sure that he was not gonna have like any morality or ethics. And he even was told to like stamp on the cross, which apparently is a thing that is done uh, to in like real life, like to to get people to reject uh, Christ. Um, So- he, um, he, he goes into the objective room, then he locked himself in that tiresome illusion, his consciousness was screaming in protest. He poured out the petrol and threw a lighted match into the pile. Not till then did his controllers allow him to suspect, that's the evil spirits, I would, I would imagine, to suspect that death itself might not, after all, cure the illusion of being a soul. Nay, might prove the entry into a world where that illusion rage infinite and unchecked. So eternal damnation, right? Escape for the soul, if not for the body, was offered him. He became able to know and simultaneously refused the knowledge that he had been wrong from the beginning, that souls and personal responsibility existed. He half saw, he wholly hated. The physical torture of the burning was hardly fiercer than his hatred of that, With one supreme effort, he flung himself back into his illusion. 
In that attitude, eternity overtook him as sunrise in old tales overtakes trolls and turns them unto, into unchangeable stone. And there's like another mm -hmm. phrase too, where he says, you know, how people, when they become like the most lost and locked into their damnation is when they're most like they've fallen kind of back asleep. So, um, yeah, that's Frost's ending. And then Lord Feverston. So he is able to get out of the banquet room. He gets into a car and he drives off and um, Merlin is actually in the back seat uh, and he starts to control Lord Feverston to direct him to where he wants to 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 get to to his horse. Um, assuming that Merlin didn't actually know how to drive a car, so he had to, to wait for someone to come in. And uh, in the process, Lord Feverson crashes the car. You know, Merlin uh, takes off on his horse, and uh, Feverson wants to walk back to X-Town. He sees all of these people exiting the town because uh, there's all of these floods and earthquakes that are happening in the town. Um, but he continues to, to walk towards it. And uh, just as he, he reaches, there's a massive sinkhole and all of Extow is swallowed up, uh, including uh, Lord Feverston with them. So that was the end of, of Lord Feverston. It's probably something like Exodus going in there, the ground swallowing up the Israelites and everything reference yes. yeah there there is like divine intervention you know in in the ending of this in term and the c.s lewis says like there was never supposed to be divine intervention but then these this grouping that wanted to subvert natural law they wanted to take it past earth and they wanted to go into the heavens and spread it everywhere else and that was uh, the condition upon which uh, God in the story said that uh, thus, you know, we, we are going to intervene directly at this point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have if it would have remained on earth and it would have been still a battle uh, meant to be fought on earth. Um, and it's because uh, they went beyond the boundary of the moon, which yes. they were supposed to be bound by because of Lucifer, or the bent Oyarsa, and they provoked the ire of the Oyarsa from the other planets. And like yes. Lewis, his phrase is, they have pulled deep heaven down on their heads. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, that's the thing with, you know, Paralandra, where Weston is, uh, you know, lands on Paralandra to try to contaminate the Adam and Eve on Paralandra. So, you know, the gloves are off at that point. I wanted to say one more thing about the the inner ring, which, again, C.S. Lewis has a, a nice lecture on this. And I do believe that this quest for the inner ring is um, something that, you know, is for for anybody I mean, obviously, it's a lot to try to, to say, like, well, what can you do to resist such strong currents as Orwell says, right? Oh, well, it's divine intervention. Like, what is the average person supposed to do? And um, I made the point in my lecture that I think that even just simply resisting the inner ring, which C.S. Lewis, I mean, C.S. Lewis, sorry, Orwell should have done. If Orwell would have simply resisted the inner ring, his life would have been very different. And really, to refuse the siren's call of the inner ring is going to save us all, because the inner ring causes you to seek out the false. And um, I do think that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the one ring to rule them all, is very much on the same vein. And, you know, like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were always talking and sharing thoughts. And uh, C.S. Lewis even brings up Numenor in uh, that hideous strength. And that ransom is also supposed to be a, a 
kind of descendant from the Numenor line as well. Um, and so, yes, this whole thing of like the one ring to rule them all. Um, and he has a, a very beautiful quote at the very end of this lecture, which I, I do want to share. I don't know. Do we have enough time? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, the quest of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. But if you break it, a surprising result will follow. If in your working hours you make the work your end, you will presently find yourself all unawares inside the only circle in your profession that really matters. You will be one of the sound craftsmen and other sound craftsmen will know it. This group of craftsmen will by no means coincide with the inner ring or the important people or the people in the know. It will not shape that professional policy or work up that professional influence, which fights for the profession as a whole against the public, nor will it lead to those periodic scandals and crises which the inner ring produces. But it will do those things which that profession exists to do and will in the long run be responsible for all the respect which that profession in fact enjoys and which the speeches and advertisements cannot maintain. And if in your spare time you consort simply with the people you like, you will again find that you have come unawares to a real inside, that you are indeed snug and safe at the center of something which, seen from without, would look exactly like an inner ring. But the difference is that the secrecy is accidental and its exclusiveness a byproduct, and no one was led thither by the lure of the esoteric, for it is only four or five people who like one another meeting to do things that they like. This is friendship. Right, and that that's a beautiful quote, and and I really it spoke to me a lot actually. You know, when I was going through college, this this essay on the inner ring definitely um, it was very relatable to me. Um, but I guess so. Here's here's I guess a couple concluding questions and, and thoughts. Maybe we want to end on is what is C.S. Lewis's vision of the good or the antidote to, to battle babble? Because in some sense, it seems that, I mean, he, he brings up St. Anne's and, um, St. Anne's is an interesting place. First of all, um, its attitude towards animals is different. And you just met, you mentioned earlier, there is a bear there, Mr. Bultitude who just lives with them. Um, mm -hmm. And like Ransom feeds his crumbs to ants and mice and they come and pick it up like he's some sort of Disney princess or something. Um, and so there's there's this kind of contrast that's being built up between the difference between the way St. Anne's approaches things and, you know, the nice institute. And what comes off comes up at the end of the story is this discussion of of Logris, you know, Logris being the second Britain that's going to that's that's fighting against uh, the 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 technocratic um, encroaching Britain that's uh, the hideous strength. So, what is the significance of Logris? What's his vision of the good? Um, you kind of talked a little. You kind of intimated a little bit on this, but it does seem, in some sense, that Logris and Saint Anne's is another inner ring, but it's. It's not the same evil, at least Lewis encourages not us to not think of it as the same evil. So why is it not, why is this not another inner ring and what's hmm. going on here? Excellent question. Well, again, C.S. Lewis being a student of Plato, I would answer it in uh, platonic terms, 
which is that there is the the false and uh, you know master slave type system of hierarchy where people are 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 placed within that um, against their will and it's to exploit ultimately um, the people below you. And then there's the, what is, for lack of a better word, a natural hierarchy, but it is not for the purpose of exploitation. So there is a hierarchy in terms of wisdom, for instance, right? And, you know, Plato talks about it in terms of the bronze, the silver, and the golden souls. It's not to say that we are born into this or that you are uh, condemned to be uh, a certain way, but rather it's an invitation to, to, to partake in the journey towards wisdom and understanding, which also centered in truth, beauty, and goodness. So for those who seek it out, they will already have qualified themselves. If, if that is the ultimate goal versus power and exploitation and to uh, abuse laws for your own purpose. And so for this platonic hierarchy, um, even if you are of, you know, a, a lower order in terms of the seeking out of wisdom and so forth, you are still considered a, a member of, you know, the kingdom of God, and that those who um, seek out wisdom actually have more responsibility for the rest. So it's, again, the opposite. It's not those who have a higher rank have more right for exploitation, but rather those who seek out the wisdom have more responsibility to help bestow it and to protect the others. And so in that sense, like obviously in society, we need leadership. We need, you know, certain people to, to um, help guide a process towards a better path rather than a worse path. And so that's what uh, Ranson's group is about. And um, again, it's not that, you know, you have to earn your way into the ring by doing this, you know, gross thing or that gross thing, but rather you earn your way in by being a seeker of wisdom through truth, beauty, and goodness. Um, And so in that sense, it's open to anybody who wishes to enter, but you have to earn it. You have to work towards um, those understandings. And I would say that in Abolition of Man, that's pretty much also what he's 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 getting at, um, and uh, this idea of the the value system. So in Abolition of Man, he he brings up the point, which is, um, and I'll br- come back actually to Logress because I realized I didn't uh, touch on, upon that. Um, in Abolition of Man, he's making the point that if you try to strip down uh, value, and if science ultimately looks at nature, including us who are a part of nature as just things to subject to um, and um, and uh, exploit for something. At the end of the day, if you have no values, you are only you know, driven by emotion and desire. And at the end of the day, if you exploit everything, including yourself, what we've created is this somewhat paradoxical situation where we are not in fact the conquerors of nature, but nature has in fact conquered us because we've returned uh, sort of uh, to the fold where we've created a situation where we are not fit to do anything, uh, let alone conquer nature. Um, we've removed the thing about ourselves, which is the the soul, which is this uh, this 
part of ourselves that partakes in the sacred, in the divine, that's what gives us any kind of power. And it's situated in, in the good. Evil can only uh, take power from corrupting the good. And it's a, a temporary power. It's not because it doesn't partake in the uh, natural law. It, it, will, it is on a path to its own self-destruction. And it might not be immediate. But that is the ultimate destination point. And there's nothing uh, that you can do to thwart that unless you uh, decide to actually go along with the, the laws of, uh, of the universe. And he also makes a very beautiful point in Abolition of Man that, you know, this whole idea of empiricism and always wanting to break it down, right? Break it down, break it down. And, you know, the atom, oh, we found the smallest thing that exists. And now we realize, oh, the atom is actually not even like the smallest thing. It's going to be something else. And it's just an obsession to, to find meaning in something that ultimately is meaningless. But he says that if you try to see through everything, including the first principles, it's akin to not seeing at all. You know, there's a reason why the window is transparent so that we can see the garden behind it. But if you wish to see past the garden, what is there to see? At a certain point, if you see through everything, it's equivalent to being blind. So um, I thought that that was beautifully said. He, he ends Abolition of Man on that note. And then with the, the whole logress and Britain thing, I mean, I, I kind of covered it earlier on in our, in our discussion, but um, yeah, he, he makes the point, uh, he says, you know, those, this haunting is no pecu peculiarity of ours. Every people has its own haunter. There's no special privilege for England, no nonsense about a chosen nation with this, uh, you know, whole King Arthur thinger. Uh, we speak about Logress because it is our haunting, the one we know about. Those who have forgotten Logress sink into Britain. And again, I think that that's kind of like the culture that represents the soul of the people if we forget that, then we are lost. Right. Yeah. Do you have any other questions, Sophie? I don't think so. Yeah. We covered a lot. Yeah, we did cover a lot. Um, <laughs> so this was a very fruitful discussion, Cynthia, and that was a great note to end on. Um, we're really grateful for you joining us. And I, you did a really good job consolidating some very complex ideas. Um, and I know we weren't able to cover everything, but um, yeah, if, I definitely would recommend anyone who's listening to check out uh, Cynthia Chung's lecture series um, on on the science fiction trilogy. Uh, where can we find that? Um, well, you can look up the the Rising Tide uh, Foundation .net is the the website address, or you can find us on YouTube just doing Rising Tide uh, Foundation. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a whole bunch of uh, lectures that we have up on our YouTube page. So um, what's, what's next for you? Do you have um, upcoming projects, that sort of thing? Um, what, and if we want to, if listeners want to learn more about what your work is, then where, where do we go? The best place is uh, through my Substack, uh, Through a Glass Darkly, um, or <clears throat> Rising Tide Foundation, obviously. And uh, for my projects, I'm actually working on a book that is going to entail uh, this as well as the Huxley uh, work that I've been doing, and it will also cover the Theosophists and and uh, and and a whole bunch of stuff. But um, I, I'm it, it's amazing going into this how much 
it is all connected, you know, with the whole counterculture movement as well, which was an attack on classical culture. I hopefully I it will shed a lot of light as to the source of um, corruption and contamination that has occurred to our culture. And I'll include also, you know, uh, remedies to this, including the work on C.S. Lewis. And I've done uh, a paper on uh, Edgar Poe as well, and um, Schiller's Gossier, which I think are are useful for people to get a, a positive um, anti antidote. Yeah, basically an antidote to all of this uh, sickness that has been uh, shoved down our throats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. Again, that's the Rising Tide Foundation Canada, her substack through at Glass Darkly, and also a Strategic Culture Foundation are places that you can find her. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you uh, the best of luck in all of your endeavors and uh, your uh, discussions and the really important work that you've been doing here. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I, I very right. much enjoyed it. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast. This podcast is produced by Raymond Okapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Marvel's 2021 Spider-Man No Way Home. Until then, friends, if you want to be a part of our inner circle, email us at unreliablenarratorstoa at gmail.com. We're not evil. We're just cool. 